Hello and welcome to the Simongos podcast, now in partnership with Continuous.com. That's continuous.com. This is episode 56 and this is around the opt-out scheme in Scotland. So the law around organ and tissue donation in Scotland changes today to an opt-out system. That's to help save and improve lives. And I get the chance to speak to Leslie Logan, who's the opt-out implementation lead for NHS Scotland, on what this means for healthcare professionals. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so I'm here with Leslie Logan to talk about the Human Tissue Authorisation Scotland Act. That's quite a mouthful. Um, so, Leslie, maybe we'll start with, uh, if you don't mind, just describing who you are and what is your relationship to this uh, topic. Okay, so my name is Leslie Logan, and um, for the last 16 years, I was the manager of the Scottish Organ Donation Service. But latterly, certainly for the last year, I transferred on secondment into the Scottish Government really in the role of to operationalise um, the legislation and to provide the training to all NHS staff in Scotland and elsewhere so that we're prepared for this change. And let's just talk about the change. So, well, let's, if you want to give a little bit of background to the existing Act and then what are the main headline changes and why this new change is coming in? Okay, So currently in Scotland, we work under legislation that was introduced in 2006. And that would be um, a a law that's predicated on authorisation. And really, I guess the law probably needs to catch up with clinical practice. Um, A lot of things have changed since then. If you were to go back to that time, um, donation after circulatory death, for example, was incredibly rare. Um, we did our first DCD donor um, in 2004, the end of 2004. And so the 2006 legislation wasn't really, you know, the 2006 legislation had already been written by that point. So it didn't really take account of what um, might um, transpire when you were dealing with um, DCD donors. And so there's an element of the law catching up with clinical practice. But in in essence, the law introduces two main changes. The first one being that it introduces a system of opt-out legislation where if you don't want to become a donor, you have to document your decision. And the second thing that the law is doing really is introducing a framework for healthcare professionals um, to ensure that we are clear about what tests and procedures that we can undertake on those who are dying not yet dead. So again, in DCD situations. And why is this law needed, do you think? What what will be the big impact? Okay, so the, the law is changing. And I mean, it's only one of a range of measures. Um, I think certainly in the last decade, both ED departments and ICU departments have massively improved identification and referral um, of donors. But what we haven't really seen an increase in in percentage terms is the number of families saying yes to donation. And in fact, Scotland has about 50% of its population on the organ donor register. And we still find about 12 times a year that families override an individual's decision to become a donor. So I guess we we know that about 77% of the people in Scotland support donation, but they just simply don't get round to recording their decision. 
And so, you know, we have, you know, 500-ish, roughly, people in Scotland at any given time waiting for a transplant. And there just simply aren't enough donors um, to help those individuals. And donors are incredibly rare. You know, only about 1% of people um, who die, die in a way in ICU um, that makes donation possible. Um, so every donation is incredibly precious to us. So we had sat back, I think, and watched um, Wales and then England um, go live with opt-out legislations. And we know that in Wales, they did see a statistically um, a statistical improvement in donation rates um, around brain dead donors. And so the decision was really made that Scotland would also go down that route um, to see if um, similar improvements, I guess, could be made to, to the numbers of people who are able to donate. Um, you know, 50 people a year in Scotland roughly die every, every year. People just like you and I die waiting for a transplant. And so there was a real, you know, there was a real momentum to try to improve that. And I think that it's recognised that healthcare professionals have worked incredibly hard over the last 10 years to improve donation. And so this time, the law is also focused on bringing the public with us, being open and transparent with the public, and saying, you know, they also, you know, to, need to affect change and improvements in organ donation. And an opt-out legislation is one way of doing that. Okay, so what are the main kind of headline kind of changes that are happening? Okay, well, I think the first thing to note is that donation remains a personal decision. Um, but there are two big changes within this current legislation. The first one relates to authorisation, where an opt-out um, system um, is being introduced. And that's often referred to, of course, as opt-out. And this means, of course, that if you've not opted out when you die, the law allows um, for donation of certain organs and tissue for transplantation. And where no decision is recorded, then donation can be deemed. In order for donation to be deemed, a number of safeguards apply. So you would need to be over 16, you'd need to be um, ordinarily resident in Scotland for at least a year, and you would also have to have had capacity to have understood the nature and consequences of deemed authorisation. The second thing the law does is introduce a framework for pre-death procedures. In other words, those tests and procedures that would be carried out on an individual who is dying not yet dead. And they're broadly categorised into type A and type B procedures. The type A procedures are those things that we would do every day in ICU or ED, test blood, test urine, undertake imaging. The type B procedures are a little more invasive and for them to be undertaken, specific authorisation from the family will then be required. And they include things like skin biopsy, or bronchoscopy, or um, CT scan where the patient is taken away, required to be taken away from their place of safety in ICU to a radiology department. And also any swabbing you know, of areas of the body that are more intimate. So for example, if we had a lady who had a past medical history of an abnormal cervical smear, 
and we needed to repeat that smear to ensure that there was no active cancer. Special permission for that test would need to be sought from the family. But the key message here, I think, is that no test will be undertaken on a potential donor until we have ascertained their most recent view from the family. Okay, so let's, if you don't mind, let's just discuss how this might play out. Can can you describe what happens, say, a a, a patient has been identified as a potential donor? Take us through the kind of steps that might occur from there. Okay, so your patient would perhaps come in through the ED department um, and um, appear to be unsurvivable and therefore be referred on to the ICU. Um, At the point where the decision is made that they're either um, diagnosed dead through neurological criteria or that continuing with care is, you know, in an unsurvivable patient is not, you know, is, is futile. Um, It's really at that that place that we then get involved and we would therefore be speaking to the family. And the the role of the family really doesn't change. Um, You know, the the views of the patient are paramount in any discussion that we have. And the family will always still be approached um, about an individual's most recent views on donation. Now, you know that we have long, lengthy conversations with the family. We call it the family conversation. And the new legislation really has formalised that slightly and given it um, a title. It's now called the duty to inquire. And we require to have a conversation with a family to explore their most recent views on donation, to, to protect the fact that donation would not proceed if someone had expressed um, a lack of willingness to donate. Um, so the family are still actively involved and, of course, are incredibly important to us because it's the family that really would always flag important information about an individual's you know, face or beliefs. And in order also to keep transplantation safe, um, it's important we speak to the family because they are the individuals that give us the information about an individual's travel history, past medical history, social history, sexual history, behavioural history. And so we spend a lot of times, um, a lot of the time with families exploring all of that. And, you know, in essence, that won't change. The conversation, you know, the requesting process might change slightly. And, you know, what we're seeing now is that what would he have wanted? What would she have wanted rather than what would you have wanted? So the, the slight shift in emphasis um, that would re- leave, you know, lead a reasonable person to conclude that the person was willing for a donation to happen means that we put the patient front and centre of all of those conversations. And just to be clear, I guess it's important. It w- would it be fair to say that you know, even if there is an expressed opinion from the patient, if they have opted in or formally opted out. Depending on how long ago that is, the wishes of the patient may have changed in that time, but they've never expressed that. But it would be the family or nearest relatives that may know something that may have indicated a change in opinion. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, so, so we know that that happens now. We will, on occasion, like I say, you know, 12 times a year, approach a family where the individual is on the organ donor register and the family say, oh, he changed his mind. And in those circumstances, you know, for for very good reasons, um, donation does not proceed. But equally, 
we know going forward that individuals will opt out of the organ donor register. Currently in Scotland, we have around about 86,000 um, people who have opted out. And we know that some of them will change their mind. That decision you know, was made perhaps in response to the mailing leaflet or something we've seen on television. But the sorts of things that change people's minds are, you know, a relative has a transplant or they see that programme from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Glasgow um, and it covers transplantation as part of um, part of the, the sort of fly on the wall programme. And we know that people change their minds. So we will always approach um, the families of individuals who have opted out as well as the all families where individuals have opted in. That's you know, that's the plan going forward. And whose responsibility is it to speak to the family? Um, the, the law um, makes it clear that it should be a health worker that approaches the family. And the definition of a health worker is either a registered doctor or a registered nurse. And for practical purposes, um, it will be likely to pretty much always be a specialist nurse in organ or tissue donation who makes that approach. Now, of course, in ED departments, we do have other staff who make approaches um, for tissue. And I know that you're going to cover that on the next podcast, really. Um, but there are, you know, there are some occasions where, you know, the SNOD service or the organ donation service is particularly busy. And in those circumstances, we would say still refer the patient to the specialist service and we will give guidance over the phone about the particular um, elements of the duty to inquire conversation that need to be had. We have a checklist um, that we can email to individuals with that information on it. But I think, um, you know, giving the family space and time and, you know, one of the things the ED departments probably do need to consider often is pausing the conversation, you know, saying, I'm really glad that you've raised the subject of organ donation, but we're not at that stage yet. You know, um, we still need to admit the patient, we, you know, prognostication, do we need to give the patient 72 hours? Do we need to consider um, other things before we reach that? But I'm really glad you've raised the subject of organ donation. And should that be something we consider in the future, we have some specialist nurses who will come and speak to you about that. I mean, obviously, this is probably quite rare for emergency staff, I think, certainly in my experience. Tissue donation, yes, but less so organ donation. But when would be the right time, in your opinion, to approach family? Well, certainly, we we really don't want families approached too early. So certainly, you know, not in the ED department, if at all possible. What we are aware of, of course, is because of the increase in publicity surrounding um, the opt-out legislation, families tend to come forward and raise the subject themselves. And if that happens, then I think that there's some helpful things that the ED department can do, which is simply to say that we're not at that stage yet. Thank you very much for raising organ donation. It's a really important issue but we'll be admitting your loved one to ICU and we'll alert them to the fact that you've raised this. And, you know, should that be something that is considered in the future, we will bring us, you know, a specialist nurse in to have that you know, conversation with you. 
what's clear is that we always check the organ donor register so that when we approach a family, we will always know that individual's view um, if it has been recorded. And actually, that's a real comfort to families sometimes. It takes the pressure off. Um, 50% of the population in Scotland are on their organ donor register already. And so being able to approach a family and say, you know, he made a decision to join the organ donor register. In fact, he joined the organ donor register twice, once when he was 17 and he got his driving license and once when he changed his GP. Um, that allows families, um, it gives families some comfort to know that that decision's made. And generally speaking, where someone has been clear about their donation decisions, families tend to support that donation decision. Do you mind just running through the basic steps then to take from a health professional point of view? So let's jump forward. This patient has been deemed unsurvivable. They're maybe in the intensive care at this stage. What are the next steps? Who who gets involved? Who makes inquiries to the organ donation registry? Who speaks to family? Just a quick kind of step-by-step -step in a perfect world. I know it sometimes will change depending on times and out of hours and things, but in a, in a normal daytime role, what, what are the basic steps that happen? Okay, so your ICU consultant would contact the organ donation service and one of us would travel to that intensive care unit. We would spend a little bit of time doing some background work, checking really that the, the patient was suitable for going forward, that there were no obvious contraindications to donation, for example, active cancer. We would um, check the organ donor register and know if an individual had made their donation decisions known, um, both for organ and tissue donation. We would have a conversation with the bedside nurse and the consultant and be very clear who we were going to go and speak to. We would then speak to the family and ascertain the patient's most recent views about donation and also about some of the tests that would be undertaken. And that conversation called the duty to inquire allows us to know the correct legal route to authorisation in Scotland if donation were still to proceed whether that is um, an express decision because they've written it down, whether it's a deemed decision where they've not necessarily recorded their decision in writing, but they may have had views, verbal views about donation, or whether um, we need to take um, authorisation from the nearest relative because perhaps they um, don't meet the safeguards, perhaps they've not been resident in Scotland for the last year, for example. And so we will then take authorisation and then we undertake quite an extensive um, clinical assessment of the patient, taking into account their um, past medical history, their travel, social, behavioural, sexual history. And then at that point, um, we will hopefully have blood results back for you know, bloodborne you know, um, infectious diseases and tissue typing. And at that point, we would then offer the, the organs that are suitable for transplantation um, into um, a quite a complex algorithm system that's managed by NHS Blood and Transplant. Organs are then placed in transplant units around the United Kingdom. A retrieval team then comes from one of the transplanting centres. Um, organs are retrieved and they're then sent onward for transplantation. And the process continues to take about 36 to 48 hours. We never remove organs if we um, 
do not have them placed um, with a potential recipient. And we also take authorisation for other purposes, including research, education, training, audit, and also um, most recently with the new legislation for quality assurance. So there, there's quite a lot going on and it does, um, the, the whole process does take between 36 and 48 hours. If, if the family ask what impact does this have on processing, you know, for burial or cremation or whatever their plans are moving forward, or does this delay any steps if, if they inquire? No, there, there should be no delay to funerals. Um, I think that one of the things the new legislation does is it brings to the front um, any views that the patient may have had in respect of their faith um, or belief system. And as a consequence of that, we're very much um, at the start of the donation process asking families um, if there's anything that we need to consider. So we know for, you know, for some families, um, it would be important to allow burial, you know, within a certain time frame. And um, we would work wherever possible to meet that time frame or simply donation, you know, wouldn't proceed. And I think that that has been incredibly helpful. There are some uh, religions and faiths who don't, for example, particularly support um, the diagnosis of death through neurological criteria. And in those circumstances, the law really di directs us now to consider alternatives. So if we had somebody of um, Orthodox Jewish faith, perhaps, or a Muslim faith, who had reservations about brainstem death testing, we would consider taking um, that family if donation was still something that they wanted um, to support down a donation after circulatory death route. And this has allowed us to really engage much more openly with the public. You know, one of the real advantages, I think, of this new legislation is that for a, deemed, for a system of deemed authorization to function effectively, we really need openness and transparency with the public. And so for the first time, you know, introducing a framework around the tests that we do, the pre-death procedures that we might do to an individual um, have become important to us. And we've been sharing with the public through the leaflets um, on social media, some of the tests um, that we would undertake. So simple things like, you know, blood tests, urine tests, um, imaging tests, tests to ensure that transplantation is as safe as possible to recipients, the tests that we need to do to match organs, etc. And so we're hoping that that helps the public have more knowledge and understanding of organ donation. And therefore, in the longer term, we're hoping that they will be more supportive of it. Um, and, and that really, I think, is a laudable aim, you know, from, from the government to make sure the public have all of that information. One of the, the things written into the new legislation is that there should be regular um, campaigns providing members of the public in Scotland with information about how to opt onto the register and also how to opt out. And also the tests and procedures that we do and when we might do them. 
And there's different categories of pre-death procedures, isn't that right? Do you mind just elaborating on that a little bit more? They're broadly categorised into type A and type B procedures. The type A procedures are those things that we would do every day in ICU or ED, test blood, test urine, undertake imaging. The type B procedures are a little more invasive and for them to be undertaken, specific authorization from the family will then be required. And they include things like skin biopsy or bronchoscopy or um, CT scan where the patient is taken away, required to be taken away from their place of safety in ICU to a radiology department. And also any swabbing you know, of areas of the body that are more intimate. So for example, if we had a lady who had a past medical history of an abnormal cervical smear, and we needed to repeat that smear to ensure that there was no active cancer, special permission for that test would need to be sought from the family. But the key message here, I think, is that no test will be undertaken on a potential donor until we have ascertained their most recent view from the family. Now, what happens when the family wish differs from the patient wish? I know there's lots of scenarios we could get into here, but what if what if someone has, say, expressly stated that they wish to be an organ donor, but the family uh, kind of differs from that opinion? How do you approach those sort of situations? Before the law was written, um, the Scottish government held focus groups and the public really were appalled at the fact that their nearest relatives could overturn their views on donation. And the, the, the public, if they make a decision to donate, they generally really want to donate. And so if we have a situation um, where there is discord amongst the family, um, then the specialist nurses are trained to manage those situations. And we will give families space, we will give families time, we will explore options with the family. And we hope that we would reach a consensus, which is as you know, as close to what the patient wanted themselves as possible. And there's a really fine line that we don't ever want to cross in organ donation and tissue donation, which is coercion. That's not what we do. We want to reach the best decision um, for the patient. Um, and we, we're asking families to support that decision if somebody has, you know, has, has made an express decision. And there are one or two situations, and you know, and this is very rare, but you know, you, you could have, for example, two parents who disagree, you know, um, over over the donation of a child. And um, sometimes those conversations end up with almost, you know, the, the consensus is a challenge, and it may be be that the family then themselves decide to say no to the cardiothoracic organs, but yes to the abdominal organs. And that is an outcome that we have had before. And interestingly, something I'd never really thought about before until I saw some of this literature was the hierarchy of relatives. I'd never really thought about that before. Do you want to just touch on that? Say there was differing opinions from different members. Now, obviously, two parents, I would say, have equal authority, of course. But um, what about if people have different 
you know, aspects of the family have different opinions. What does the hierarchy mean? Okay, so we have a we have a, a nearest relatives hierarchy that we are directed to follow. Um, should we be taking nearest relative authorization? Um, the law now directs us that we can speak to more than the nearest relative, and that's good because you know at ten o'clock at night in that relative's waiting room, there's probably four or five people, not just the one nearest relative. So we would take all of those individuals' views into account. Um, they would provide us with evidence and information that might be anything from a conversation they had to a post on social media. Um, I know a lady that has a tattoo saying, recycle me, and that in itself is an authorization, but it's evidence that we would take into account. It is, however, the decision of the nearest relative um, not the whole group, if you like, of individuals who, who has the final say, if that is the root of authorisation. And I think, you know, we're, we're very well aware families are much more complex than they were even 10 years ago. And this is, you know, one of the advantages of the legislation. It's caught us up a little bit with clinical practice. We've had some clarification around where half-siblings um, sit um, if you're an adult. And you know, we know the actual hierarchy itself hasn't changed. Um, but we know, you know, Helena Bonham Carter, for example, doesn't live with her husband. They're married, um, but they live in separate houses. And so the hierarchy really does take account of all of the various permutations that you can have. And make no mistake, some of these conversations are incredibly complex. You know, the 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 snod could be in the room with, you know, uh, parents, for example, wondering why um, a friend of the deceased is there, only for the parents then to discover that the friend is there because their child is in a same-sex relationship and lived with that other person for more than six months. That then makes that other person the nearest relative, not the parents. So if you've got a university student who hasn't told their parents that they're in a long relationship and living with a partner, um, that could be a shock um, to parents. And again, these are situations where the snods and tissue court, they are trained to deal with these situations and um, to get the best outcome for everyone, but primarily for the patient um, we're there really as the patient's advocate. Now, what has been the experience of Wales? You touched on it a wee bit earlier. Has it shown a dramatic improvement in the number of organs and tissues available? So yes, um, you know, we would hope that in Scotland we could see more donors as a consequence of introducing an opt-out legislation. As I say, Wales um, have demonstrated statistical significance and improvement of their consent rates in Wales. They have the highest consent rates in the United Kingdom at the minute. Whether it is all about the law change or whether some of the improvements have come about because of the national conversation um, would still be debated, I think. Um, the whole of the country you know, currently has received information about organ donation. We know that it has reached individuals because We've seen a little bit of a surge of people joining the organ donor register. And equally, we've had a little bit of a surge of people opting out. 
which is absolutely fine. Making a decision really helps us as healthcare workers um, to know what conversation that we're going to have with a family going forward. So the modelling that was done um, in Scotland, for Scotland, was that we would see an increase of anything, an average perhaps of about 12 donors per year. And I guess of interest to the ED departments is that there has been no sort of surge in individuals coming forward in ED and raising the subject of organ or tissue donation. Um, you know, the donor pool hasn't changed. The, you know, the number of potential patients is, is broadly similar, um, although, of course, some individuals have, have opted out now. So that, that isn't something that should be a concern for ED departments. I know that we've been asked that before. And how has Scotland been preparing for this change? We've been preparing for the change now really for the last um, year and we've had a relatively comprehensive training programme um, which of course, you know, at, in a time of a pandemic sort of went wrong and we had planned sort of face-to-face -face cascade training from the clinical leads and organ donation that we have in all 26 um, Scottish donating hospitals. So we have um, continued with a national training slide set, which has been delivered mostly online now by the Clinical Leads for Organ Donation. We also have developed um, an electronic learning tool, which is hosted by NHS Education Scotland on their TUNAS learning site. And that um, electronic is quite a fun project actually you know we've got five professional individuals you know uh, a, a surgeon an ICU consultant a donor family a specialist nurse and a tissue retriever all um, walk you through the donation process it takes about an hour and um, you get a certificate at the end of it but um, it allows you to walk through the process in respect of the new legislation so everyone really has access to that we have um, obviously worked through the donation committees that all of our Scottish hospitals have. We've had a leaflet um, out to all households. There has been, of course, the media campaign, which is a campaign really that provides the public with information rather than you know, extolling the benefits of transplantation. It's an awareness um, campaign. And then finally, Organ Donation Scotland, which is the Scottish government really, have um, provided a new website where all of the information um, can be is gathered into one place. I'd go back just briefly for healthcare professionals, the NES TURAS website, um, all of the information, all of the training materials are uploaded there. And in fact, in the next week or so, there will be a training, a recorded training presentation specifically for ED departments. Um, it takes probably about half an hour. And one of um, our tissue coordinators has undertaken to do that. And we'll put links to all of this in our show notes. OK, Leslie, thank you very, very much. I think we've covered uh, just about everything that I think we wanted to get in there. So thank you very much. Uh, and thank you for all the hard work that you're doing um, getting this out to, uh, to, to the public and to the health professionals. Um, anything you'd like to leave us with before you go? Um, just that, you know, 
having a conversation about organ donation is a really challenging thing to do. Um, and we all know that having that conversation does make it easier for healthcare professionals. So I guess any healthcare professionals listening to this, I would urge them also to go home and have that conversation with their family. Yeah. We're not all listening to this purely from a health professional point of view. We could all be donors and our families could all be donors. So we need to look at it from that perspective also. Well, thank you very, very much, Leslie. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you.